Today I'll be talking with Senator David Jordan, who has served in the Mississippi Senate as a Democrat from the Delta District 24 from 1993 to the present. Senator Jordan's story is not entirely unique to Mississippi, yet it is. His background as a child, the Delta, and working in the cotton fields with his parents, that's fairly common from people who are his age. He's in his 80s now. Yet Senator Jordan, because of his parents' insistence that he get out of the cotton fields and go to school, was able to get several degrees, and he came back to his hometown of Greenwood, Mississippi, and was elected to the city council 33 years ago, and then later found his way into a race for the a Mississippi Senate seat that had uh, become open, and he has served in the Mississippi Senate since 1993. In fact, he's written a book, a memoir, uh, in which he talks about coming from the cotton fields all the way to the Mississippi Senate. His story is compelling. Uh, he tells about a couple of incidents that he recalls vividly from his childhood, which clearly made an impression on him. And and my takeaway, uh, and I think it will be uh, similarly felt by listeners, is how difficult it must have been to be an African-American child and having to walk this tightrope every single day uh, in which, in a society in which if he made one misstep uh, and touched a person's automobile, the wrong person's automobile, then he may lose his life over something like that. In the conversation, you'll hear Senator Jordan talk about the next step or the next steps that Mississippi needs to take to complete our metamorphosis. And one of the things he talked about is sending people to Washington who can change the conversation so that we're not continually fighting about these red meat issues of abortion and uh, LGBT and, and guns, and that we can move on and talk about the real meat and potatoes type issues that Mississippians uh, need some help with, like our infrastructure and like our crumbling schools uh, and underfunded schools and like our uh, dire health care situation in this state. And instead, what we do is we keep sending politicians to Washington uh, who continue to use rhetoric that divides us rather than brings us together so we can talk about our big problems. And I think that's what he was referring to when he talked about next steps. I'm here today with Senator David Jordan. Senator Jordan, I really appreciate you coming over and spending some time. The legislature just adjourned sine die today which means, thank the Lord, the, the legislature is going to go home and leave the people's money alone. Uh, and you are on the way home, as I understand. So I appreciate you stopping by. Yeah, I'll have to wait. I got some people coming from uh, Louisiana to meet with me on some property up in Greenwood's so be around until 1 o'clock. But then I'm going to leave when, as uh, Archie Moe said about Mississippi, I'm going to leave because Walker would be most too slow. So I'm going to head back to the flatland at Delta. Going back to Greenwood. That's where you You live, right? Yeah. Okay. How long have you lived in Greenwood? I was born and reared in LaFleur County, and that's where I live now. I I lived in Greenwood since 52, but uh, I was born and reared outside of Greenwood, four miles south. Okay. I'm the son of a sharecropper. Yes, sir. uh, How old are you, Senator Jordan? Well, I'm in the 80s, yeah. What year were you born? Well, I was born, uh, you know, midwives at that time give different dates, but I just say I leave it at um, 80. Okay. Plus. 80 plus. Yeah. So you've seen a lot in Mississippi. In I've seen time. a lot, yes. And I've seen the Mississippi have undergone somewhat 
a metamorphosis, but not complete. There have been some changes, what I mean. But, uh, uh, you know, Mississippi is a state. She has a clean, beautiful dress when, if you want to shape her as a lady, a beautiful dress on. But uh, her underclothes is not too clean. And what we actually need to give her a bath and make her and dress her up again. And dress her up in beautiful black and white attire. That is the best analogy or <laughs> metaphor that I have ever heard uh, as a description for the state of Mississippi. And, yeah. and I want to talk with you. I want to dig into that a little more as we go. But before we get started, for the folks who have never met you, have never read your book, could you tell us about a little bit about your childhood I grew up on the Whittington Plantation, the youngest of... Hooding, uh, Hooddington? Whittington. Whittington. W-I-T-T-I-N-G-T-O-N. Yes, sir. Uh, I grew up as the youngest son of a sharecropper. My dad and mama, mother uh, both worked hard all of their lives. They died early because of that work. My what mother what were their names, Senator? Uh, my dad's name was Cleveland Jordan, and my mother's name was Elizabeth Jordan. Yes, sir. And it was five siblings, and we had one sister. She's still alive, and four of the boys. And I'm the youngest of that clan, and I'm the only one. The two of us are the only two living. Out of the five, three of us were classroom teachers. That's great. Uh, and uh, Describe the—I'm the, um, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you, Sam. No, but uh, growing up on the plantation was uh, share, on the son of a sharecropper. It was hard, and you, you, you went— you went to field before sun up, and you didn't leave there until sundown, almost dark. And you ate in the field. Their mother would get leave at eleven o'clock and go home and cook and bring the food back. We all gathered around and uh, ate it. And uh, we picked three bales of cotton a week. All of this is in the museum over at the. Uh, our new Civil Archi- Rights Museum. Yes, and archives and history portion of the museum. We, I'm in both. My dad is in the Civil Rights Museum as well. Um, so we would stay there. Even the dog went to the cotton field with us. All, everything went. And In fact, I was winging in the cotton field. I don't know. People don't use that terminology nice wing. Yes. That's when, in, in those days, uh, there wasn't no such thing as giving a babe a bottle. Everybody, it was the breath Right. Uh, all of us were reared by mother nurses from the breath. And sometimes we would uh, nurse until we were two years old plus. Right. So, so your mother did that in the cotton field? Oh, yeah. Did she just mother, pause her cotton picking and, and take care of the baby well, on her breast? Well, I had a, a brother a year older than me, a year and a half older than me. He he uh, would always, when I started crying, he picked cotton with a, in a pillowcase put little strings on in the court string. I don't know if you know what those are. Yes, sir. A pillowcase. And he would pick around the area, and they had over had sacks over the cotton stalk to keep me as a young boy covered up. And so I could Did they make some shade for you? Shade for me. And every time I wanted the nurse to start hollering for nurse, he'd go and run down and get my mother. She'd come up and nurse me in the field and then go back to picking cotton. Just incredible. How old was your brother at that point? He was already picking cotton. Yeah, he was about a year and a half older. He 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 was sir uh, four or five, may have been four, but uh, he was just picking 
around in that area to watch me. Otherwise, he was watching the baby. Stay, staying close to you. It's close to so, me. So, so at four, four years old or something, he was yeah. a babysitter yeah. and picking cotton already. Yeah, well, in a pillowcase. Yes. Had little strings on a pillowcase where he'd pick around. Wow. That, so people who have never been to the Mississippi Delta and you they hear you say plantation, they may be thinking about some uh, some house that they may have seen in a movie, uh, you know, with, with cotton fields all around it. Can you describe the actual plantation, the Whittington well, Plantation? Yeah, it's, it's about 150 families on that plantation. And I'll go to this part first. Only five children out of that 150 family, which could have been over 300 children, got a high school education. It was uh, Robert Anderson, Samuel Sampson, David Jordan, which is me and my sister Viola Jordan, and Andrew who's Jordan, who is deceased. Only five out of more than 150 families. Because when they got old enough, 15 or 16 or 17, they made tractor drivers out of us, out of the young African-American boys. But my dad said we were not going to drive any tractors. Okay. He was a religious person, and he uh, said we were going to school because he uh, had gone around to different conventions. And he, Mr. Whittington, got after us one day. We were out on the road hitchhiking. We lived four miles south of Greenwood when I got to be eighth grade. We were, it was cotton picking season, uh, but we were not picking cotton. We had gotten all, most of the cotton, but, but a bale or two in the field. We were out hitchhiking trying to get to school. Six o'clock in the morning, Mr. Wooden came along, and he threatened us. To, uh, I can't use the language he used, but we ran. We ran uh, off of the road and got Why behind did he you. And got behind, well, he said what he would do to us. For doing what? For going to school, for oh, not being in the field. He didn't want you to go to school. No, of course not. Didn't okay. want us to go to school. So your dad had to, your, your parents had to sneak you into school, register you? No, what, you what happened, we ran and uh, off of the road. And when he passed by, we well, we knew what kind of vehicle he had. It had a white Ford. I guess you and had we, to look out for him. We, we, we were looking both ways <laughs> on 49, and we'd bomb, and somebody see us with those books. Uh, they would pick us up, and we'd get on the back of a truck, and we'd lead, they'd put our heads down, and they couldn't see us, and we went to hitchhike on to school. But we came home and after school, after we walked back that four miles and told, we called him Papa about it. Papa went to see Mr. Whittington. He told him, say, uh, I, I signed the contract, not my boys. You hold me responsible. And so he was such a good worker. So Mr. Whittleson said, well, Cleve, I, I just thought maybe he said, well, no, just hold me responsible. So you're referring to a sharecropper's contract that your father signed with yes. uh, Mr. Whittington? Whittington, yes. Okay. And he, your dad was making the point that that didn't include his boys and they needed to be he allowed to go to responsible. school. He was responsible. Right. But we had already picked 35 bills. Of cotton, at that point, there was about a strapping cotton. As you say, when it's get thin, you may have a bale or so in the field. Mm-hmm. We had gotten to that point. It was late October then. So that's late in the season. That's late in the season. So, so you related that story you just told us about uh, Mr. Whittington catching you on the road and you running away and you had a smile on your face. But I imagine that must have been terrifying for you as a child. As a child, very terrifying because uh, uh, I, I've seen African American kicked. I've seen them beaten with axe hammers. As a 13-year-old boy, I worked at my loose store. These were uh, Syrian, uh, Lebanese, and they were ran 
a store right across from the plantation. I worked there at night. Uh, and one day I was working there. And I was about 12 or 13. But I was always tall, but I didn't weigh 100 pounds wet. So uh, I went out and and waited on a couple, a young white fellow, young and his wife, whomever he's with. And uh, they asked for two beers at that time. You could hang a tray on the side of the car, and I served them. And Maloofs also were, liquor was illegal then, but uh, they had a way of getting it in uh, from Louisiana. So they'd go as a caravan down to Louisiana to pick up uh, the liquor. They had the liquor truck with a canvas over it, so it's hauling something, and uh, one Maloof would be in the front and one would be behind. So they got it the truck and they'd bring the liquor in. This must but, have been during Prohibition then. Well, uh, you could call it Prohibition. <laughs> Liberal okay. County was supposed to have been dry, but it was wet. Ah, I see. It was a dry county. So, so it yeah. was a connection with the chef. So I was a 12, 13-year-old boy, so I, 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 I knew every brand of liquor at, at 11 or 12 because I worked there five or six years. And at that time, they sold whiskey. And African-Americans, when uh, coming from five, four or five plantation, they all would gather at my loose store. And at this particular time, uh, the blacks would get together from different plantation. They'd talk over. They'd go behind the tractor shed, and they'd drink a half a pint of Monroe. cost a dollar and a quarter. They drank four or five of those uh, that Saturday. And long by four o'clock, uh, the family who uh, who was with him uh, were ready to go home because there were chickens and animals to be fed. But at that time, they brought the whole family to the store because they uh, brought three children and the wife, and they were drinking by then. He got high. Monroe got high, and uh, high steppers we called it. The liquor was titled Monroe brand blended whiskey. And they got high, and he, they went, my wife went around and got him, brought him by. And uh, she's, they divided the gross in a croaker sack. I don't know, you know, what a croaker sack is. A I know what brown sack. People listening to us may not, but it's, yeah, it's yeah, like a burlap uh, yeah, material. Yeah, uh, rough, yeah. Rough material. Rough like material. A, yeah. And they divided the grocer, and his wife was holding him up. And one of the children were holding him up on the other side. They were propping him up. Propping him up. He was <laughs> high as a Georgia pine. And uh, when he went by the back of the car, he touched that car, touched that vehicle. And the man looked through and saw him. And he got out and he kicked that man down to the ground. He, he stomped him. He kicked him everywhere he could. And the, uh, the man was saying, please, boss man, don't kill me. Don't kill him. I'm sorry I touched your car. He just touched the bumper on the back, the uh, back trunk part. He said, please don't kill me. The children was hollering. The two children were hollering. Please don't kill my dad. And the mama hollering, please, bro, don't kill my husband. Please. He's just kicking him everywhere he could, down, stomping him. And uh, finally he went in the store and asked my loser, give him a gun to kill the black SOB. And in the meantime... They was running with their road. They had the weekly supply of grocery. And they was running, not in the road, but across the field. And they dropped all of that. And they, I don't know, you know, they had lard at the tail, L-O-R-D, uh, L-A-R-D, uh, 
in a yes. four-pound pack. For Fat swift. used for cooking. Yeah, for cooking. That right. was a week's supply. And they lost all of their, spill all of that, and they spill all of their grocery, the flour, all over the field. Here, hearing you tell the story and, and watching your face, it's, it's as if uh, you're you're there. It's, you you remember it all so vividly. That. I witnessed that. And but it must have made a terrific impression it, it on you. It made this and one other incident. The reason I left, never left the South other than to go to school. That's where I would cha- do my best to change Mississippi as much as I could. So when he left, Maloof wouldn't give him a gun. So the man finally left, and I moved a tray off the car, and he drove away. And this man and those two children, his wife, uh, he wasn't able to do nothing. But they came back trying to retrieve that grocer that they had spilled, and that was their week's supply, and they were crying. And the mother was crying, and children was crying because they had wasted all the, the groceries that they had picked cotton in order to try to make it to next week. And there was spill, and I saw that. It hurt me. It hurt me so bad. And I a, said, a week's worth of work spilled yeah, across the ground across in the field because the man touched the back of his mm. car. Well, and, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, Senator. Go ahead. But the next one dealt with me. Uh, before I went into the schools in Greenwood when I was seventh grade, sixth, seventh grade, I uh, would come in and sweep the floors at my little store. And during January, February, a farmer would come to my since he sold liquor, and they'd sit around there and have a bottle under there somewhere, and they'd drink and they'd get high and different plantation owners. And I'd walk in. My mama had made me a book satchel out of cotton sacks and had straps on. I'd be putting it up, and I'd get the broom and go to sweeping. And uh, the farmers would say, why are you educating that damn nigger just like that? So I'd make a tractor drive out of it. I wouldn't say, no, I'd just keep on Who sweeping. would they say that to you? They would ask Maloof that, uh-huh. these Syrians, Maloof. Right. Uh, some of them are attorneys now. That's great, grand. All of these guys are dead now. Yeah, they're attorneys they, here in Jackson. Yeah, move. That's all a part of the family. And they asked and said, "Why are you educating that nigger?" Just like that. And I'm as a twelve or thirteen year old boy. I'd hear all of that. And they said, "I'd make a tractor driver that damn nigger." So I, we weren't going to school, but four months a year in school, you would start when all the cotton is harvested off the plantation. We'd go from December through April to April 15th. We had to be out of there getting so, ready. So education was important in it's your family. Important. Yeah. Why so, was it so important to your father it, it and mother? Was, I, uh, you know, I was running from the cotton field because uh, <laughs> it was no hope. And my dad told us he wanted us to to make something out of ourselves. That's what they call it in those days. But with this particular incident, one of those farmers came that, uh, now I get off of this, came that Saturday morning He in a new packer. I don't know if they make packers anymore now. I don't believe they make that vehicle anymore. And he so. had a, uh, somebody driving him. He's the head of a plantation. He looked at me and said, you that black, you that smart SOB. Now he called I, I just asked him, yes, sir, I addressed as best I could. Uh, they wanted a cocoa. And I brought the cocoa out. He kept looking at me. He told his driver, so get out and teach that smart SOB. 
hard to say yes, sir, in the right way. I said, yes, sir. That's all I knew. He grabbed me and twisted my collar in some kind of way. I couldn't get her loose. I was tall, but I couldn't get her loose. He struck me in the face about nine times. I saw stars and I saw everything. Did you hit back? No, no. I couldn't Why not? Hit, I couldn't hit back. I, he had me twisted for. I couldn't do anything. What would have happened if you had hit back? I probably would have been dead. Wouldn't have been a kill right then and there. But I didn't. But I had nightmares over that case and the other case I told you. And I said then I'll never leave Mississippi. I'm going to do whatever I can to make Mississippi a better place. I had no idea what I was going to do. But I made that promise. And I never left Mississippi to move away. I was uh, fortunate enough to get scholarship to University of Wyoming, got a master's degree in chemistry from out there in Kansas State College of Pittsburgh, for the state of University of Texas, Dillard University of New Orleans, and Tuskegee above a master's degree because I'm undergrad from Valley. And I came back and I set up the Greenwood Voters League 51 years ago after graduate school. And I sued everybody I could. <laughs> uh, I sued my city, changed the former city governor, one of the first elected to the city council. Our school system fired me. The superintendent was from Georgia. And I quoted and I, at the Voters League, not at school. I said, either he was from Georgia. I said, either we'll have to discipline him or put him back on those long midnight trains to Georgia. And he fired me for that quote. I went to the federal court. <laughs> and then... Uh, so were you the plaintiff or was it the Greenwood Voters League in these cases you well, talk about? Well, what it was, I headed the Greenwood Voters League which represented poor people. Mm-hmm. So legal services would would handle that. I was just somebody helping the poor. I was an educator. I had a master's degree in chemistry. I was a young person. I was educated. But I was remembering these two incidents so they, they couldn't touch me because I represent the poor people. Would this been in, have been in the 60s? Uh, this was in the 70s. Okay, so this is still the, the end, the, toward the end of the civil rights era in Mississippi, but it, still this kind of activity going on in, in the well, civil rights Not so fast arena. in the Delta. Right. Kind of the, uh, not so, it, 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 in some places, but it was still tough in the Delta. Uh, it was still tough in the Delta. So... Uh, even when I first finished college I at Valley, I went. I attended the Emmett Till case. So I'm jumping around, uh, not telling sequentially like it, That's okay. it actually happened. But uh, my point was why I didn't leave Mississippi and where I can get some relaxation out of the lawsuits that I filed. Jordan versus Greenwood, we won that one. I became a city councilor. Now out of... And you've Seven. been a councilman now for 33 years. I, I, that, well, I've been a councilman, councilman ever since, yeah, 33 years. They they tried to change the law. They filed bills in the Senate to get me removed. But uh, it's, there was no conflict of interest uh, because, actually, I'm a legislator on the former government we got on city council. I'm a legislator there. I'm a legislator here. So it's consistent. So I don't violate anything. And uh, so the U.S. Department of Justice stood with me on that. Hey, everybody, this is Ed Ellington. 
PJ Lee and I are the producers of Civil Conversations. I just wanted to say thank you for stopping by and checking out this series. If you like what you're hearing out of David, if you think that he's the type of guy that uh, we need in Washington, uh, especially in a, a time like this, uh, I want to encourage you to go to BarriaForMississippi.com. That's B-A-R-I-A for Mississippi.com and support David. Get to know a little bit more about him, about his background, about the things he's done throughout his career to help your everyday average folks like myself. And um, if you want a man like that in in Washington to serve, then I, I really encourage you to get behind David support his campaign if you can't if you can't support him with your money support him by getting other people to listen to this podcast um, thank you so much for checking out this episode I really hope you will subscribe rate review and share the word because um, in my opinion David is the type of guy we need in Washington now more than ever I want to talk about your service in the Senate where you've served now for 26 years 26 I believe years. but before we get there Senator Jordan, I want to go back to your childhood and just help us understand what it must have been like to for your very existence to be um, terrifying in that you might misstep. You might touch someone's car. You might not say, yes, sir, the right way. Any little thing that you might uh, slip up and do wrong in someone else's eyes, some white person's eyes might get you beaten or worse. Well, let me go back to this. I've had automobiles, and I had pictures of this, uh, where people just have bust all of the windows out. I got a letter from the Klan now that I keep, and I can let you see it, where they talk about they call me the N-word, and they say they wanted me to leave Greenwood and say we're just getting ready to start working on you. And the end, like you were never equal to that of a white man. I don't know what they meant about that. And they uh, bust all the went. I had a new, just said, my wife was start teaching us bought a new Oldsmobile. They burst the windows out of it and left that note on there. And uh, then I went on a few years. I kept, I did, that didn't stop me. I uh, went and bought me a 30 6 and I bought one for my wife, too. She never fight a weapon in her life. You and bought I, two thirty out six rifles? <laughs> and I laid out a lady across the streets. I, she had an abandoned truck just so I could watch my home. And uh, she told me it was all right if I'd be out there. So I, you would go to her house across the street yes. and, and get in her abandoned truck and watch your house? Watch my house. How often did you do that? I did that a few weeks. Eventually she sold the truck because she was afraid. And um, so they didn't come back. And later again, bullet holes was in my den door where somebody shot through there. And then in 2011, they shot through my home and shot through my wife's car. So I was asking you about your childhood, and you're describing things that have gone on in your adulthood and up until as late as 2011? Yes. 2011, uh, nobody could find anything. And I had a monitor, but nobody could find anything. But now, I was serving in the Senate with you in, in 2011, and right. I don't know how, but I don't remember that. that Jeremy happened while wrote we were, about it. That, uh, uh, it's, uh, did it happen while we were in session? 
No, this was uh, the summer. There's a story called Booker's Place. You may have seen a documentary that was filmed in Greenwood back in the 60s, early 60s. And they were, NBC was filming at my home. Nobody at my home but my wife and I. So we had a lot of space there. All the children are grown and gone. So uh, they decided NBC uh, was filming there. And uh, three or four crews like we have here now was there. And people drove by, didn't understand what was going on. So they invited me to a church. Never gone to other than an African-American church in Greenwood. So I invited to one of the white churches. And I really didn't want to go, but the media invited me, told me to go. And they showed a film back in the 1954-3 when the civil rights movement started in Greenwood. And there was a character on there speaking about the N-word, and we got to keep these in in the place. They showed that back, and they showed what the change were. And they asked me to comment on that film. And I made some statements that I was glad that we were able to change it by suing the city and changing and former city government and changing and boycotting. Uh, and thinking about talking with you today, uh, it, it put me in mind of a song that I really like. I'm sure you know it. It's an old Sam Cooke tune, Change Gonna Come. Yeah. And I know you have seen some change in, in your lifetime and in your career in public service. And, and I think you mentioned earlier that we've we've had a lot of changes, and you, you use the description of a, a woman with a nice dress but some dirty underclothes. We still need change in Mississippi, right? Well, Mississippi, in my opinion, could become an oasis if to work together. Look at what we have. We have, on in the area where you come to, we build big ships. Mississippi Delta, long rows of cotton and sizzling heat. Produced the blues, which is a strange music that um, that not only America love but the world. Now you were instrumental in passing legislation to start the blues trail, right? Yes. How did that work? It works fine. Well, I mean, how, tell me about the the activity in the Senate that got it started and and your role in in uh, getting that bill passed. Well, at that time, uh, Governor Hella Barber was governor at that time, and of course. Uh, I didn't exactly always agree with the governor at that time on his issues. But uh, we opened up and created a Blues Commission bill that would uh, put up signs across the Mississippi Delta and areas where bluesmen lived and died. And we got that bill and created the Blues Commission I was on there for a little while. John Horn was on there for a little while. And Senator John Horn from Jackson. John Horn with Jackson. And I, Musgrove, Governor Musgrove, my friend, and our friend, is, was governor. So I called him to see if I could uh, bring a group of people down with him, talk with him about that. And the governor signed the bill. And then we put up all over Mississippi Delta and other places. Yeah, you may not know this. There's one in Bay St. Louis, my hometown. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the 100 Men Hall has yeah. one uh, has one there. And uh, Robert Johnson, of course, uh, one of the early blues singers. Not the Robert Johnson who I served with in the house. No, not, not that. <laughs> not, there was a, a bluesman died in the Mississippi Delta. Well, he was right. poisoned by a woman, and he was uh, author of a lot of songs. 
allegedly sold his soul to the devil so he that's could be right. a great musician. Yeah. yeah, that's the Johnson I'm talking about. So, so you were able to have success in, uh, in getting that legislation passed. Yeah. Let me ask you, has your race ever hindered you as a member of the Mississippi Senate? If, I, you know, Senate uh, Representative, uh, I've had so many fights. I maybe to my ignorance or none of that I, I just push on in spite of the difficulties. I just, I'm focused on something. I do the best I can, pray over it, and uh, work hard towards it. So I imagine there, certain, there have been some shortcomings, maybe. I could have been uh, gotten other appointments, but I haven't been able to detect it. There are people who uh, may not like what I say or what uh, my speeches, but as a, as a body of been in colleges and universities, I find the Senate, even though we disagree, as you know as well, because you serve a term or two or there, we fight, but we go and eat and come back and fight again. And by my going to the University of Wyoming, where no African-American, in fact, they thought I wanted Buffalo soldiers out there. <laughs> Were you the first African-American to go there? No, there was one from Jackson. Uh, I'm the first from Miss, from uh, maybe the second from Mississippi to get a degree from the University of Wyoming. But you, 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 you used to rejections. So you know how to deal with them. But I found something strange about the legislature. We fight, but we pat backs and get along and disagree. So I, I, I have, I, there have been possibly a few people that resented me because of my strong views on issues that are important to African Americans and to Mississippians. Yes, sir. So I have no regrets there. <clears throat> Senator, you've written a book. Uh, we, we mentioned it briefly earlier. Uh, the title is From the Mississippi Cotton Fields to the State Senate, a memoir. It's your memoir. Yeah. Uh, and, and that seems like an incredible journey and a long journey. Um, so can you tell us just a little bit about how you got from the cotton fields to the State Senate in Mississippi? I, I know you, you've given us some background on your education and, and the work you did with the Greenwood Voters League. What what prompted you to run for the Mississippi Senate? Well, there I had tried when I was fired. Let me back up a little. When I was fired in 79, I ran against a good friend of mine, Bunker Huggins, and I lost about 35 votes. And for the next 20 years, I was running for the House of Representatives. They redistrict around me. They just watch out. David Jordan lives here, and they were district around me. So they took you out of Bunky Huggins' Senate district. Yes, yes, <laughs> they took me out. And they, uh, Doug Anderson, Curtsy, Ed Blackman, two or three more people, drew up a district, drew the district lines, and included my precinct in it, and. Uh, had me to come down and look at it. I said, yeah. And I, I said, I'm, about to, I'm retiring from the school system anyway. So Doug was responsible. He knew exactly when I was going to retire. He was at my retirement, and they drew those lines and included me. But on the other hand, uh, some of the people 
and uh, Greenwood were glad they had certain people to help get me elected. I was surprised because they wanted me off the city council. Ed Pittman they they was, thought you, if you could get a promotion, then you would leave them alone back home. Yeah. <laughs> Ed Pittman was the attorney general at that time, and uh, they had uh, Section 109 prohibit supervisors or different people uh, in the legislature from serving on local government. But they thought that would apply to me as well. And the Commonwealth, local newspaper, kept calling, Son Jordan, when are you going to retire? You've been elected to the Senate. When are you going to, when are you going to retire from the city council? I said, well, I, in January when I take my seat. So they didn't, that was not early enough. So they called Attorney General. Uh, Mike Moore from your neck of the woods, Attorney General then. The former Attorney General from Pascagoula. Yeah. And they, he said, well, Mike Moore told him, so well, Attorney General Moore told him, well, he really doesn't have to resign. I picked up the newspaper and read that. I said, I told my wife, I said, Chris, I'm going to make him, I'm going to give him some trouble. Hey, I'm not going to resign. So it didn't work out the way they thought it would. <clears throat> well, Senator, you know, uh, I guess, that I am running for the United States Senate for Roger Wicker's seat. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. What can a, uh, a 55-year-old white man in Mississippi who loves this state probably as much as you do, uh, what can I do to hasten the type of change that we still need in this state? Well, you know, we call ourselves conservatives and uh, uh, the Christian, whatever, Christian people of this state. Uh, the, you know, let me t- say this. African-Americans, Negroes, or colored people, however you want to call it, are different from anybody else. We came to this country at the bottom of ships from the African coast all the way to America. And sharks followed ships from that African coast all the way down because they were, we were tied together on the bottom, and when they died, they threw them over. We didn't come here waving at the Statue of Liberty. In fact, we didn't even want to come here. But since we came as slaves, gave 247 years of free labor, good God, of free labor. And now uh, everybody say, well, we're equal, but we're not. We still have shortcomings, and I, and I just like to see people who will actually include us because we build a country. Sweat, bloods, and tears. Water is land, but our tears are made it richer than our bones. My people died hoping a better life for people like me to carry the torch. Uh, so, so what is it about us that we have to be denied simply because of our race? And the Bible tells us from one blood I made all men. We went different direction after Adam and took on different characteristics. But don't punish your best friend. Let's work together and make Mississippi an oasis. That's all I've ever hollered about and wanted. African Americans and white people working together, black and white together. Have you ever heard that comment? I don't know who it is attributable to. That as long as one man keeps his boot on another man's neck in the ditch, 
ain't either one of them getting out of the ditch. That's right. That's true. How does that how does that relate to what we do in Mississippi sometimes? Well, we're still doing some of that, and that caused us to stumble into the future backwards. If we just shoulder to shoulder, we ought to be at least as good as a post staff. We ought to be able to stick, okay? So I, I can't do much with this one finger, but I can do a lot with this even at my age. So we can work together, and the sky won't fall, and there's enough here for all of us. That's what I'm about. So uh, I don't. Uh, we need blacks and whites in Washington and Mississippi. The best thing Mississippi could do is send a black and a white field state. So when you are thinking about the type of candidate that you want to go represent you in Washington or to represent you statewide here in Mississippi, what kind of qualities are you interested in? that candidate having? Education, education, education. Since I'm from the flatland at Delta, farming is still a big business. But I want, I don't want people going there fighting against senior citizens who have worked hard all of their lives, who missed an education. Now they're old and they cut Medicaid. The state turned down million, a billion, a million Billions. Billions of dollars for Medicaid. And seem to think everybody on it is just for a beat. But you got people who live, who, who work hard all their lives, who need, to, who need that help. And we turn money down. Why do you think we did that, Senator? I don't know. I don't understand. I could understand uh, how people who were not Christians could do it, that would be out of completely ignorant. But if you're a servant of God and read the Bible and believe in it, I can't understand how they would do it or support anybody who would do that. And, of course, you're talking about the money that we would have received if we had expanded our Medicaid program under the ACA or or what's called Obamacare. My understanding is the first two years— uh, well, there would have been no match. We would have gotten federal money, and we would have not had to put up any money whatsoever. That's right. And then after that, the match went to 10% for the state and 90% from the federal government for yeah. a number of years. What kind of, that's, a, that's a big deal. But we, we refused it. Louisiana got some of our money, Alabama, Arkansas. And, every, and we're the poor. We're on the bottom. Every dollar we send there, we get three or three back. And then we refused to expand Medicaid simply because some folks say that somebody is riding the system. And you got people of my race and poor whites as well who have worked all of their lives. Now they're old and they need Medicaid in order to exist. We're denied. That's where that's those kind of mistakes ought not to be continuously repeated. That's why we need men who have a compassion for people of both race or any race to serve in Washington, D.C. Not somebody who, who want to restrict people and uh, looking at the old South as it was 100 years, 200 years ago. We want to undergo a metamorphosis, a change, to make Mississippi what her pretentious. The museum explains where we came from and the difficulty we have had. 
we ought not to be trying to uh, uh, repeat that. Just to close the bookends here, one of the first things you said is uh, when we began talking is that Mississippi has undergone a metamorphosis, Some, but it's incomplete. Incomplete we, We're not yet that butterfly yeah. that we can be. Not yet. We, we're we in the cocoon stage still. <laughs> we're just about to get the cocoon, cocoon we, we, off in that process. We're not the caterpillar anymore. We're now in the, the cocoon, so yeah. we're midway. Yeah. So we, we've done some good. We're, we're better than we used to be. No doubt about it. Thanks that. to people like you. Well, who, I don't, who are dedicated well, enough to go just, get your education, but yet come back to Mississippi and insist on change. Well, I just cried in the wilderness, one voice, and uh, in many instances, uh, done the best I could. Really, uh, people elect me because of that, and my compassion with people. I got fifty-seven thousand people that I represent. Well, and you made a difference for them, and you've made a difference for all well, of Mississippi, Senator Jordan. Well, Thank you. Well, 17,000 of them are white America, white Mississippi. I don't care. 40,000 Afro-America. I do my best for the people. That's the only reason I'm here. I want to make money. I do nothing. Thank you, Senator David Jordan. I appreciate your time today. You bet. And thank you for all you've done in your, your lifetime and your career. Thank you. Appreciate it.